Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 106, A Conversation with Jennifer Finkelstein. Jennifer is the president and founder of the Five Under 40 Foundation. In April 2005, Jennifer was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 32, weeks before her wedding. She found herself unable to connect with anyone who was in a similar situation, of a similar age, similar background, and everyone that she was being referred to connect with was older, had finished parenting, and and really wasn't somebody that she was necessarily able to relate to. This was before social media, before someone could search using the breast cancer hashtag and automatically be entered into a community of women wanting and wanting to help and share their stories, share their experiences. Through a mutual friend, Jennifer was diagnosed. Through a mutual friend, Jennifer was connected to a woman named Michal, who had been diagnosed several years prior to her. And Michal really took her under her wing and mentored her, helped her figure out how to wear a scarf and and where to get a wig. Together, the two of them started looking for more women that had been diagnosed under the age of 40. And that's how Five Under 40 came to be. In the beginning, they truly wanted to find five women that were under 40. And that's how the name was born. Since that time, though, it has developed into an incredible organization whose mission statement is to provide funded medical, wellness, educational, and beauty services to women under the age of 40 who have been diagnosed with breast cancer or who have a BRCA mutation. On today's episode, Jennifer shares some of her experiences when she was diagnosed. She talks a little bit about how Five Under 40 works, what services they provide, and how breast cancer treatment has really changed in the last two decades, given social media and given the connections that now exist. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Jennifer Finkelstein to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's start by just talking a little bit about who you are, share with the audience what your background is and how Five Under 40 came to be. Sure. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, so I am not under 40. I am 49 years old now. Um, but back in 2005, a few weeks before my wedding to an internist who also specialized in rheumatology, 
Um, he had felt a lump in my breast. Um, I had just turned 32 years old. Um, we had some cancer in our family, although at the time, only really ovarian and possibly colon cancer were shown to have a link with breast cancer. And we didn't have those. And I was not BRCA positive. And I was diagnosed by a New Jersey breast surgeon um, with you have stage one right now. Um, so, you know, had I married the nice Jewish guy, my parents wanted me to marry, I'd actually be dead. So, um, good times. I felt totally normal. I felt, I mean, I had my bloods done recently. Everything was fine. I was in the best shape of my life. I was getting married. Um, and it was really just a complete shock, um, to, anyone that, you know, knew me. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to go ahead with the wedding. And um, I'm really glad that I did. Um, next month, I celebrate 17 years of survivorship. Clinically, it's probably not the accurate timeline, but I do feel like the day you're told that you have cancer, you know, is really, is really your date. And, um, and I think, you know, there's a lot, I'll just say that survivorship is a continuum and there is a lot that we see online, people asking when, when does my date start? And I think it doesn't, I know we want to fixate on a date so we could say right. five years free. And I know that's really important, but the definitions are blurred right. and the clear definition actually is that survivorship starts at the day of diagnosis because you are surviving, you are living. Right. You no. Know, and so um, it does differ, but I, I love that. Def you know, I loved saying that from day one, that's your, yeah. that's your milestone. Yeah. And, you know, that's really, that's really fascinating that people are always asking you. And I understand why, because when you are diagnosed with this disease so young, there is so much uncertainty. Of course. No one can tell you why no one can tell you when, and no one can tell you how, and you're literally grasping for any sense of like, okay, this happened, but how do I prevent it from happening again? And that's really the hard part because we can't tell people, unless you have a genetic mutation, we otherwise cannot tell people why it happened. And I hear this a lot. Well, how do you know that what is what I'm going to get that my treatment is going to help? And a lot of times we don't. And that is really, really scary. Yeah, there's... There's no question. And the majority, just like you said, with and 80% of women with no genetic mutation for the disease, we don't know, right? Like you said, like why they get breast cancer. I mean, we, when I launched this, I, um, I came up with this really with my best friend. Um, she was an, an extraordinary woman that I met through a mutual friend, um, but it took me about five weeks to find her. And um, we were both treated, um, or my, I was just beginning the process, but she was treated three years earlier at Cornell, which is where I was treated by Dr. Moore. Um, we had the same doctors. We were both stage two. We, she literally took me by the hand. So remember, Eleanor, this is pre-social media. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, this is pre-Facebook. This is, I literally, I believe I mentioned that my, my dad is a private practicing gastroenterologist for, you know, 40 years, dad, find me someone under 80, 70, 60, 50. Yeah. It was impossible. 
Yeah, these resources didn't exist at all back then. No, they did not. And what was most frightening for me, if I could be so frank, was that I had several family members who did die of cancer very, very young. And my mom did a great job of protecting my brother and me. So by the time we found out that these people had cancer, they were already in hospice. And that was it. I, many of these women, you know, Instagram is a tremendous resource. So people can see there's community, there's not alone. Women like Nally, whom, you know, we have a mutual shared affection for, you know, she, digitally showed women how long it will take for their hair to grow back, which is really a, a, a common question. Um, it used to be not the first question, even how, it was, you know, how long am I going to live? That was my question. Uh, so, so tell me, so you met your best friend and how did you go from meeting her and she took you under her wing to starting five under 40? A great question. I'm going to try not to be too, to get into such gross detail, but the day we met was really magical. We met at a restaurant with our mutual friend. And um, when she walked into the restaurant, I'll, I'll never forget how she looked, you know, and when I had my first um, appointment with Dr. Moore, um, I did ask like, when will my hair grow back? And she took out a photo, a hard printed copy um, of a woman with short white hair. And I didn't identify with her. And I said, don't you have any paid my, you know, my, my, I've heard you're the world's authority on breast cancer. Like, is there anyone that I can speak with? And she mentioned an author, um, Geraldine Lucas, um, and she didn't have it in her lymph nodes. She had already had children. I just felt like it was going to be, you know, I just kept comparing myself biologically, psychologically, like every, you know, aesthetically every aspect. So I really didn't even know what a young woman with breast cancer looked like. And Michal right after lunch, which I had never experienced. Remember, I don't have children. So it's not like I'm meeting other parents at school. I mean, I, I lived in Manhattan for 10 years single um, by myself. So, you know, this whole, and I was only just getting married. So this whole thing about like, I was taught never to go home with a stranger. Right. And I think that's how, how I was raised. Um, and she invited me into her home and she, and I'd never been in a townhouse, like, you know, like where someone had the whole home. I mean, that was just like, even in of itself. I mean, I had roommates and walls and everything else. Okay. I'm thinking of my New York city, tiny apartment. Oh yeah. I mean, same. Do you hear the sirens going to Sinai right now? So, um, she kissed the mezuzah and said, it's the Israeli way come in. And we walked up four flights of stairs and finally got to her bedroom. And she dug really, really deep into her closet. Um, the closet um, was all mirrored floor to ceiling and she took out a box. And she said, I have something for you. I'm like, this is so bizarre. What is in there? Is it like a secret book? Like, what do I need to know? I mean, I really didn't know what was in there. What was in there were scarves, hats, and I'll never forget. She stood behind me. 
I only saw, she didn't say what they were. She waited until we opened the box. And these were like Hermes scarves, like scarves that like I'd never seen like outside of a store, you know, I didn't own that kind of stuff. And she's standing behind me and she is putting them on top of my head. Um, she's like, you want to wear it above your eyebrows over the top of your ears. So your bald sideburns aren't showing and you just have your earlobes with your earrings. You're going to wear fabulous earrings and, and this is, and you're going to tie it like this. And there wasn't even a cell phone that I was like taking a photo where we could video how to do it. I mean, it was all in person. And I literally felt in that moment that there was a passing of a torch that she was saying to me, it's your turn. You can do this. And I remember saying to my husband all the time, my fiance, um, or afterwards, um, you know, I'm telling you, cause he used to say, Jen, this is really rare. Like I'm letting you know. And I literally thought that no one could introduce me to anyone because they, they had died. I mean, you know, when you, when you read how rare it is. And I said, I'm telling you, I feel like New York city is so isolating. People are living, you know, many of my friends are not even married yet. Like they're single, they're living alone in like little walk-ups and studios. Like, I feel like there are other women out there. And he's like, what do you think? There's some sort of secret society. And, you know, I was like, I don't know, but with all of my resources and, you know, I was so, it was like white privilege, you know, like, I mean, it was, it was a lot of privilege to be able to get in, to see these doctors, you know, within 24 hours. Um, and I, I didn't feel right about that. And I did wonder, you know, even if there was only one out there, how did they know how to navigate? this complicated journey um, from diagnosis, the continuum that, you know, we were speaking of, right? Diagnosis to treatment, to survivorship, and then sometimes thrivership. Um, and I'm sure you do get questions, when will it be over? But I can say with Michal, I really felt like there was something there. She was telling me that I could do this. And we both looked into each other's eyes in that moment, I felt to myself, my God, if we could bottle this and we looked down and both of our arm hairs were on end. I mean, it was really like something magical happened. And um, I was told there were so many other great organizations. So at the time I was told, um, uh, Anne mentioned Young Survivors Coalition. Um, she mentioned Susan G. Komen, when I called there to ask, um, to mention my story, um, they called back, I left a message to see if I wanted to go on like Brian Williams or something and tell my story. And I really wasn't interested in that. I said, do you just please all, I would just love some tools, some resources, anything, how to get through this. And uh, they said, sure, go onto our website go to, and you'll see plenty of resources. They told me how to go. And um, it was tools on how to fundraise for the race for the cure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was disappointed, not shocked, but I did do the race for the cure every, and it did enable me to feel as though 
I was part of something with my friend who became my person. We used to, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And it was, you know, we'd have lunch. I mean, this is almost 17 years ago. We didn't really begin extending, extending funded services until 2013. Um, sadly, her cancer did recur um, in 2010 and she died on Valentine's Day. Um, she had moved to Israel, back to Israel where she was from, Tel Aviv, and I did get to see her one last time. Um, but, um, you know, she made, you know, just a, a immeasurable impact, you know, really a seismic impact on my life and the trajectory of my life. And I had come up with the name five under 40. I was trying to will it into the universe, uh, you know, that there were three other women besides us, please, you know, and through, you know, we found three, I found four other women to pose in a photo. Um, and I had showed it to her. Two of them were stage zero in BRCA, but, you know, I, I felt like it was important to yes. each because BRCA, not BRCA, like anyone who hears the word cancer or preventive and it impacts your entire family. I mean, you know, that is insane. Um, and I had decided after appointing them, you know, they really weren't working with me. They were posing, they, they were brand ambassadors. I began thinking of wigs, like Michal took me for my wig. She took me for like, I couldn't believe that at Cornell, there wasn't a social worker who's like, this is where you buy your wig. This is who can teach you how to draw on your eyebrows. Like it wasn't like people were actively really used or maybe they were when they were 10 years younger than me. Like I was 32. So maybe a 22 year old would go onto YouTube. I don't know. Like it just wasn't me. Um, and there was just so much unknowns. And my mom said, oh, we'll take you to Brooklyn. You'll get a schmata. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> um, like, I don't care how much you love shopping. No one wants to go shopping for hair. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just kind of not feeling it, but, you know, believe it or not, we, she took me to bits and pieces and they became our first provider. Um, so that was our, really our first service. And Michal was very, um, I don't want to say obsessed, but the whole aesthetic component of what we go through was very important to her, if you will. And there's a reason that I'm carrying on about her. And that is also because it's, it's definitely, she, she was my co-founder. Um, but what makes it more unique was the second, when her cancer came back in 2010, 2009, um, she was Googling incessantly to find another way so she wouldn't lose her hair. She found that the European Union had a cold, had approved a cold capping system from the Netherlands. She found this. <laughs> Cornell was one of the sites that cold capping was used. So mm -hmm. at Cornell, they even pay for it. And this is not something I'm, it's not a service we offer but to just show you, and she said, Dr. Moore, if I buy this, can I do it? She said, you're more than welcome to get, you know, the system and so forth. We just can't, and you can store it here. We, we just don't have extra staff to, you know, help, help you do it. And we're not, we don't really know much about it. And that to me, you know, aside from my gratitude 
to you for serving us throughout for the last two years to the day um, is just research, right? Like research is everything. And this is how these cold caps, this is why they became a clinical site. So she cold capped with her husband and her sisters rubbing this, you know, freezing her scalp. And she did it again in Israel. She bought the whole system. It was $120,000. Like it wasn't like ready for market. It wasn't even forget about FDA approved. No one in, in the States were even using it. Yeah. So, um, she, and then the second time, you know, I mean, I have mixed feelings about them. I know the majority of patients do have hair regrowth. And I think it's a great option for women that have already lost their hair. But I do recall towards the end, she was adamant that, um, you know, her headaches were attributed to the cold caps and they were not. So leave it at that. But um, yeah, she really made, um, I, I think about her all the time. And last month was 10, um, 10 years ago to the day that she died. She's very much with me and her daughter volunteers and has met many of our women at our meetups. And really in terms of the other services, my first job out of college, I actually worked at Oxford health plans. Please don't hold it against me. (laughs) Um, But that was my first job. And I thought to myself, what if we created a network, you know, with my resources, my husband trained in New York, my dad, New Jersey, look, maybe, there are other doctors that we could align ourselves with, whether, you know, dermatologists and it grew from there. And, um, Michal also was, you know, it was very important to her to do yoga and acupuncture. And this was not widely used or as widely used as it is now, yeah. not by a landslide. Um, I remember we, and we, how we, how we, what the things, the only resources that were really available to us were doing the walk and raising money, attending uh, BCRF's educational symposium at the 92nd street Y um, and buying breast cancer stamps. And that was it. You know, it's crazy, right? It's crazy that this was in relatively speaking, not that long ago and how far just things have come and changed and it's really remarkable. It really is. You know, there's so many like great groups on Instagram and it's fantastic. I mean, I'm just like so proud of all of these young women and being so brave. And I definitely feel like women in social media across all platforms have really made a contribution and what was going to be so unique about our organization is we're going to be patient centric and without social media, that's really hard to do, especially when I'm not even a doctor, I'm not a healthcare provider. Um, but it was really important to us. And if you ask a physician, um, you know, is premenopausal is breast cancer specifically under 40, is it rare? Um, they're going to say, Yes, it is. It's only 5% of the population. But um, according to 2020 um, and uh, American Cancer Society, it's a little over 12,000 patients. So that's almost, it was 12,150 human lives 
-hmm. And these women on social media are putting a face to that. And there's something about that. Every year, the data gets better. I recall an article out of JAMA saying that, you know, the last few years that the incidence of breast cancer in younger women has tripled since the 70s. Um, I recall an article that Dr. Coleman has discussed with me from the Journal of Clinical Oncology that talks about women that are diagnosed under the age of 40 are 30% more likely to die. I mean, we are the forgotten population. We remain the forgotten population, which incenses me to this day. I never knew what an undertaking it really would be to really try to change legislation. And when I learn about the US Preventive Task Force, which is not even comprised of don't, don't, get, don't get me started right. on exactly on and you know what but you know what i was i i always thought they would lower the age and not elevate it um but without getting political something happened with our most recent governor who who had resigned about during the uh the pandemic about two years ago i read that women that are 35 and over if they get a script from their doctor they can in fact get a mammogram which was not the case before even if you you know, had money um, or the wherewithal to even be on the lookout for that. Um, you couldn't get a mammogram. I understand the radiation, but now it's like, even if they lower, I never even thought it could happen under 30. And the first woman I met that was a BRCA patient, she was 26. Mm -hmm. And um, I met her in 2013, but literally, you know, we, We've been tracking demographically, psychographically. Um, it's really fascinating and quite frightening. What this is an epidemic. I mean, there's no question, and it is criminal what is happening. And due to need, um, we 540 was just going to be our faces. However, the women as brand ambassadors would share their story. It was typed up no videos, no social media, um, just on our website. What happened was in 2013, women started coming out of the woodwork and we had always intended to change the stories if we were able to, if we could find five more women. I remember saying to my husband, like, you know, he's like, look, you know, if you want to quit your job, you know, because I was telling him, I think I'm going to need to quit my job. He said, you know, hold on a minute. You know, I will support you no matter what, but really think about how many people we're talking about here. You know, it is rare to have breast cancer under 40. We know that, but the numbers, as you said, the numbers are increasing and that is scary, you know? And I, I think that one of the points that I wanna make is it's so important for people to know what their risk is. How many people are not aware of their family history? They are not aware that they are not at average risk. And so starting mammogram screening at 40, they're too late, you know? The, but there, there need there needs to be so much more in terms of education for, for yes, them. that's such an excellent point. I'm so grateful you brought that up. I'm worried about the young women walking around that don't know how to do a self breast exam, don't mm -hmm. know the facts, don't have the resources, don't have anyone that works in the healthcare field that can look out for them, and it's it's always so surprising to me. I mean, sometimes the most educated and connected. And, you know, it, it really, cancer doesn't discriminate. 
as you know more than anyone. We had talked about founding 540. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to kind of get a little bit more of a breakdown about what you guys do. 540's mission is to fund medical, beauty, wellness, and educational services to women diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 40 or to those with a BRCA mutation. So how this would work if you sent us a patient, she would be sent an application. Um, It's about five pages long. And I think that if I had to pinpoint one thing that really truly makes us so unique, it's the one-on-one patient care that recipients received. Um, So once they fill out the application, they have their doctor sign it. Um, And when they choose their services, um, each um, recipient is entitled three services total. So she can choose three medical services. She can choose um, a human hair wig, mental health sessions, Zoom sessions with a nutritionist. We've got about 10 services, including wigs that went from in-personal to virtual due to the pandemic. Um, And it's actually been a great experience. Um, So women have that option if they're not well enough, or if, you know, we fund services to women in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, but they're coming from Albany and they don't want to make the trip to come in for a wig. You know, for example, that's something that we can provide them with over, over zoom. We're very selective about the vetting process, especially medical providers. Um, but really all, all providers, we want women to have access to the very best and to feel happy and feel good. And the last thing that this should be is stressful, as you know, and there's just so many other factors that interplay into this diagnosis. So they choose three. Now, something else that we've really grown in the last five years in terms of our targeting really for emotional support for um, women with stage four, Um, they are entitled to our services for the rest of their lives. So that is a commitment that we've made Um, in terms of the ratio right now, there's probably about, um, I would say, 20% 20% women with stage four. And, you know, as we know, this demo is growing more than any other demo um, in this uh, demographic. Um, and then they, they have a doctor assign the application. And once we receive it back, they are assigned a peer match. And this peer match is their match for a period of six months. Um, and then, you know, during this time, we really, really recommend that the women do attend our meetups. Um, so really that's how a woman gets, um, and we, we've never turned anyone away for services ever, ever. Um, so it's, it's really wild. Our meetups started really organically. Um, and when I say that the first one we had, it was February, 2014. And I had now known six women and all six showed up to my office. And I remember there weren't any support groups for young women. 
Um, and they were sitting on my sofa in the waiting room. I used my husband was using my husband's office at night to host these. And my eyes were tear filled. And I said, like, what are you doing here? And they're like, we heard there was an event. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, then, you know, it was these women became the next round of brand ambassadors, an example of the patient support that the individual one-on-one and what makes us so unique as a nonprofit that's truly patient-centric is, for example, we lost one of our patients. Um, well, we've lost a few, as you know, um, but her, the mother had reached out to us and my gosh, I was just, you know, we had um, laid her to rest a few days later and that's when a social media announcement would come out. But it was really important to us that we called each and every woman with stage four that knew her because she was always active in our metastat, in the metastatic community, in our meetups. And I know as firsthand, not having stage four, but that learning that one of our sisters passed away, you know, even if you don't have stage four, but especially if you do, is just really devastating because you're wondering, obviously it just hits so close to home and, you know, you're just crushed. Um, so it was important that we reached out to every one of the women one-on-one and let them know what happened before they saw it on social media. I think that's, I think that's so kind and, and a gentle way of breaking the news. I think nowadays we just hear everything on social media and it's, it's a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's just, it's like your shock, you're devastated. You want, and you know, we've been on the receiving end where it's like, you know, just like, what happened? Where did it go? Did it go to her brain? Like, you know, it's like, you just go on this and it's like, like, let's lay her to rest first. And this is like private medical information. And, you know, we, of course it's, it's natural to want to know what happened. Right. I mean, it's, especially, you know, they form bonds with these women that, you know, are, have cases like theirs, like hers in my liver, we're both ER positive, you know, I mean, it's, and you just wonder what's next. Did she know? I mean, it's just all of these. And, you know, we've really learned from being at this out of the gate unofficially for 17 years, but, you know, as an organization funding these services for the last decade that, you know, the only person that knows really like what this person's initial diagnosis was, is the doctor and the patient and that's it. And regardless, you know, stories just, I don't know, sometimes, you know, people have their reasons about not really wanting to provide the full story. They don't want to be judged. They are in denial themselves that this is, you know, the diagnosis and their treatment protocol, or perhaps they were uh, they decided not to have certain aspects of their recommended treatment and judgment can be passed there. So you just never really know. Uh, I think that, you know, you're, you're very right. And I think also partly is because of the culture that we live in, 
there mm-hmm. is this expectation that people are going to share everything. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important to stress that you don't have to, you know, when I see patients in the office, I'll always tell them, you know, you don't, if you're going to be public about it, you know, you may get a lot of unsolicited opinions and things like that, but you also don't have to share all the details. You know, you can say, I have breast cancer and I'm getting treatment and, and that's it. But it's interesting because, um, you know, I don't know if you follow the home edit at all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen clear share being diagnosed with breast cancer and it's interesting because she doesn't, she hasn't really shared the details um, and, but saying, you know, she's going to need chemotherapy and saying it's an aggressive cancer and, and it almost, I think causes, I mean, you don't have to share, I know you don't, but then I think it's hard for people reading it to say, well, what does this mean? What does it mean that it's aggressive? She's getting chemo and I got chemo and I was told mine wasn't aggressive. You know, it, it. Right. Excellent point. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the whole, I mean, I struggled so much personally with this diagnosis and there wasn't social media and there wasn't one platform and now there's 20. I mean, it's just like, how do you, that is just completely, it's crazy, Eleanor, because up until like two years ago, I was kind of discouraging women from, it's like, the most powerful thing you can do is share your story. Right. But I, because, and and you, right. Like holding the hand and treating all of these women, I've just like witnessed this seismic shift in terms of like almost a shame. Right. I mean, just the public's, you know, awareness, understanding, um, perception about the word cancer. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think it was Susan G. Komen, that organization, of course, in the eighties that, you know, made it okay. Couldn't even say the word breast on television. So yeah. it's like, they could say breast cancer and like, thank God, because that created public awareness and this disease, regardless of age, social status is all about advocating for yourself and you know, demanding a sonogram or whatever, you know, not too young, like knowing, okay, I'm going to call my mom, call my closest relative and learn my family history. I mean, there's just, it's just so multifaceted. And so I have, I don't have one bald picture of myself. And, um, I was really like, my reasoning was, you know, it definitely wasn't the time or a place to really be advocating. There were maybe one or two women that were, but I was just trying to navigate my own experience. And my parents are especially, you know, they're both, my dad is extremely private and my mom has held the hand of eight close relatives from her father to her siblings, to then her daughter um, who had cancer. And I'm the only one that has lived. Mm -hmm. So it's just, really was really painful for her. We almost like didn't speak when I was struck because she just couldn't even handle. And I'm like, mom, like you got to see, she just didn't see it from my perspective. And I get that as a mother and, you know, a fear, like, what is this going to mean for her son, for her grandchildren? Like, she's just been 
since she's seven years old, she's known the word cancer. When her father started wearing an eye patch and had ocular cancer. And then by the time he was, you know, she was in her early teens, he passed from pancreatic cancer and just, you know, it just was, it's just been her whole life story. And she's now like finally retired in her golden years in 77 and enjoying her grandchildren. And then it's like, okay, now my daughter is like broadcasting our like family stuff. It was just like too much. And, you know, she did finally obviously see that, you know, her, she wasn't at her first gala. Her granddaughter was born on the same day. Um, but you know, she, and she's not on social media. So obviously it took a while, but anyway, um, different strokes for different folks. And it's also generational, right? You know, I completely agree. I think that what was very private now due to social media is becoming obviously a lot more public. I think it's changing the way that we talk about breast cancer. I think it's changing the way that people obviously find a community and find other women going through similar experiences. What was your experience and how that started to transform the work that you were doing? And what have you seen with this, you know, with increasing social media use? But there were just so many women I started to see overnight. I, in the beginning, there wasn't, I guess, like our first wig was 2013 in the, you know, October. And there, I remember no one really had their cell phone with them. And then like, it just got bigger where I would see like people had cell phones. And I would say, cause in the beginning they would bring, of course, they're allowed to bring a family member. Sometimes it's like, you know, two people, if they're that lucky to have two people uh, there for them, supporting them. Um, and then it was like, would you like me to use your phone to take photos? The most powerful thing you can do is tell your story. And we, whatever you decide, we support you, but like, maybe it doesn't have to be today. Maybe it can be on your terms. Maybe you just like think it through for a few minutes. You know, why don't we just take some pictures of you, hold on to them and you decide when you're ready. I think that that's really important to give, uh, enable the patient to reclaim their narrative. Actually encouraging people to just take a step back because, you know, so often um, when someone's diagnosed, it's like, everything's moving ridiculously fast. And so you're like, okay, this had to happen for a reason, right? That's what people think. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be public about it. I'm gonna share everything, but you have to process it yourself before yeah. you can share it with the rest of the world who's gonna come at you with all the thoughts and the opinions. And and that's actually why I started the podcast was for a way wow. people, to, if they didn't feel comfortable or ready to go to a support group, that they could hear people's stories, um, that. that they could consume kind of at their own pace. Because when you start sharing, you're subjected to a lot. And, and that, that may be a lot, you know, that might be too much. Especially in the beginning. That. Oh, wow. Like, that is so incredible. And you're obviously extremely not only authentic, but you're saving these patients' lives. We never call them patients. They're recipients. We're mm-hmm. not healthcare professionals. Yeah. They're your patients and our recipients. And it's just really incredible. I have chills to hear you. Thank you for sharing that. I 
want people who are listening to know how they can take advantage of these services, how they can apply, where do they go to get an application? Oh yeah, absolutely. So right now, um, you'd really have to reach out to us directly. Um, if you go to contact us on the website, mm-hmm. um, it'll be info at 540.org. It is there, there is an application on the website right now. It's just an older version and we're really not updating things in piecemeal. We're just waiting to relaunch our, our new site within the next 60 days. So um, if they just reach out, that's the best way. They can be older than 40 now, as long as they were diagnosed under the age of 40. Correct. So if their initial diagnosis, look, if we, but we can't have anyone past 45, right? Cause then, you know, if we had like a seven, 70 year old right now and my God, how inspiring is that? I've known a few in my life that had a diagnosis at 32 and are now 76 and, you know, um, yeah. Right. But like, it just, you know, no, so no, we, that makes sense. we have to cut it off somewhere. And I think that the higher we go with the ages, even if we had, you know, a thousand people on staff, it takes away from why we're five under 40. Thank you so much. This was really, really helpful. And I, I think it's so important to get the word out about what you guys are doing. That's incredible. I'm so honored that you chose us. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I think it was just so interesting to hear about the differences in treatment even 10, 15 years ago and how so much of the breast cancer community has evolved. Five Under 40 is really a truly wonderful resource. And if you're listening to this and think that you may benefit from it or have a friend or a relative or anyone that may benefit from it, I I really urge you to reach out. You can find five under 40 on Instagram at five under 40. And as always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. Definitely reach out. Let me know what you thought about this episode. And as always, if you have a moment to leave a rating or review for the Apple for the interlude podcast on Apple, on iTunes, please do so because it helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. And with that, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see all of you soon. 